All right, we're in our second week of our Joyful Expectation Christmas series, Advent series. Um, As you all know, Advent, Christmas season's filled with joyful expectations, and we're well aware that in the midst of those joyful expectations, right, you know, that's, we're expecting something in the future. In the midst of that, there's a lot of brokenness. We recognize that, and and Christmas is always a, a time that when you're feeling or, or, or when you are hurt and broken, all of the joy can wear you down just a little bit. Um, it can kind of throw off your game just a little bit because you, you're feeling such a, a range of emotions. And Christmas really makes us examine, you know, what, what we're wishing for in this world and, 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 what, and what Christ has to offer us in this world. So during Advent, we look forward to the birth of the Savior, and then during Christmas, we celebrate that arrival, right? And marvel at all the ways that he has exceeded our expectations. Again, we all have these lists of things that we want, but if we really knew the truth, what he gave, the answers to prayers that we didn't pray, would so far (laughs) exceed the things that we wanted, right? The things that we asked for, because He's God, and he he loves us. He loves us intensely, and he's always going before us, even before we ask. That's what he does, that that, that prevenient grace. But I want to share something with you this morning, kind of interesting. It's from the weird but true files. Intimately embedded in the good news are several stumbling blocks. And it's not like God's like... I'm going to make this difficult because that's not the way God is. And I've met people when they run across something in scripture, they don't understand. Well, that's just the mystery of God. And I just, I I push back against that because I believe that God tells us everything that we need to know. And even some things that we, we want to know he's because he loves us. He's not holding back anything really. Um, But there are some stumbling blocks. It's just the nature of it. There's some stumbling blocks to receiving love Right This week we celebrate with the candle of love. And Christ has love to offer us. But there are some stumbling blocks. Biblical salvation is anchored to at least three. And I'm sure you could probably come up with a few others. Number one, the supernatural. Right? A God. We say God. Others might say a God. Right? Is breaking into history. Right? In the flesh. Right? That's miraculous, just all by itself. We don't need to go any further. God is breaking into history in the incarnation. Um, but it gets even crazier. By way of a virgin birth, right? Talk about supernatural. As a date with death on a Roman cross, only three days later, he's going to be resurrected to life. So if you have trouble with the supernatural, if you have trouble with miracles, then you're going to have trouble finding Christ. I, you, that's... That's just the truth of it. Second stumbling block is it all comes from a very strange, ancient, and remote culture, right? Over 2,000, between two and 4,000 years ago. An ancient, ancient culture, weird as can be. I mean, they've got habits, and they do things that we just think, oh, what? Right? And there's just such a distance between the way they thought and the way we think. But the fact of the matter is, all the mechanisms... To salvation, everything that we need to know is, again, intimately embedded in this incredibly remote, strange, and different culture from long, long ago. So if you have trouble with miracles and if you have trouble traveling to Jerusalem, to the Middle East, an ancient culture, you're going to have trouble finding Christ. 
Because those are the two ways that, that we go. And, and, a, and a third, sin. Just, just the idea of sin. I, I know I've met a lot of people, well, I don't sin. Right? They look at themselves and I don't deserve hell. Right? They make that equate and, and then they think, well, I, must, I mean, must have done something horrendous. But I haven't. So what's all this talk about sin? Right? And some guy from a far, far away land long, long ago can somehow rectify the situation. That's a stretch for a lot of people. That's a, that's a stumbling block. Somehow rectify a situation that may or may not exist, right? In the minds of a lot of believers, well, I'm not a sinner. I, I really don't have anything to do with this guy from 2,000 years ago. But as a trained medical doctor and a, and a thinker, we're looking at the book of Luke. He is a trained medical doctor. He's well aware of these stumbling blocks, these objections, See, because they not only exist today, and we know they exist today, they existed in his time as well, right? He's writing his gospel. You might not be aware of this, but he is writing, Luke is writing his gospel to a Gentile audience, very sophisticated, worldly Gentile audience. They are not very superstitious in compared, right? They do ask for superstition, but they're not loaded down with as much as the Jewish people have, right? They, they've, they've got quite a load, um, so he addresses these, all these objections head on in his gospel account. And it's very strange the way he does it. Again, keep in mind as I talk that he is speaking to, again, a sophisticated worldly audience, but he's trying to, exp his explanation is going to include things that they're going to have pushback against. Miracles, ancient predictions, angels, right? This Greek audience is going to go, their eyebrows are just going to raise and go, okay, whatever. This is, this is a weird thing in the Eastern Mediterranean world. You, you Jews are weird anyway. So, you know, whatever that's for you, right? That would be the reaction. Now I want you to watch the way Luke presents his message very fast. I'm going to start chapter one, verse one. Again, he's going to address all three of these objections head on. Verses 1 and 2 say this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Now, here's the crazy thing. And again, we, we don't notice it. I did not, I was not aware of this, kind of digging into this this week. It was quite fascinating. Um, I guess historians, Bible scholars have long noted that these first four verses, they're, 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 they're incredibly Greek in style. They're very, very, very Greek in substance and, and feel and flavor. It's, it's literally, these first four verses are, are like, if, in English, we're, if we were to write an introduction to a dissertation or, or a thesis paper, right, in, in college, this would be the, the very, very formal. And if you've ever done these papers, you don't get to wing it, right? You got to follow formulas. And if you don't follow the formula, you get about a bunch of red marks by your reader, and they say, follow the formula. I had to do that. And there's a formula. And this is a formula. This is a formula to an educated audience. And I'm going to give you some educated information. I'm not going to be telling you stories or myths. or anything. I'm going to tell you the, the decided truth. I'm a doctor. I'm a thinker. I'm going to tell it to you like it is. But then beginning in verse 5 and carrying on all the way through well into chapter 2, he switches 
right? He gets very, very Hebrew, and the explanations, the sentence, everything, the imagery is all incredibly Hebrew and flavor and, 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 and context and, and everything. Total switch. No attempt to gloss over, to avoid, or to explain away any of this weird Jewish stuff, right? Angels, predictions, all that kind of stuff. And again, this is strange considering the sensibilities of his intended audience, a sophisticated, worldly. We, in the Western world, we live in that kind of world. We, live, we, we see ourselves, as compared to the rest of the world, as sophisticated and worldly, right? North America, European, that's, that's the way we view ourselves. So what Zechariah has to say, this is very, very poignant for us too. Not just 2,000 years ago, but, but for us. So... From the very beginning, the second thing I wanted to, to, to point out on this, um, all the other Gospels, they start with Jesus. They start at his baptism. You know, they start at different places. But Luke, when he says he's going to start at the very beginning, he starts at the very beginning. He doesn't start with Jesus. He doesn't even start with the prediction of Jesus' birth. Luke goes to the very, very beginning. He starts with the prediction of the guy who's going to announce the birth of Jesus, and then you have that, and so he's going, he's going way, 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 way back, the prophecy of the forerunner of Jesus. But let me read this. This is uh, 5 and 6, and this, this is where it gets very, very, very Jewish. And, and, and again, if you're, if you're a Gentile and, 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 and miracles and, and uh, all this kind of stuff is like, uh, that, that's for you country bumpkins kind of thing, feel what they feel as, as they hear this. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron, so they were both of the priestly tribe. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of God's commands and degree, decrees blamelessly. I mean, they were a great couple, right? They're the, great, the couple that you want your, your grandkids being raised by or, or babysitting or, or so forth. But there's one problem. And again, this seems so incongruent. It's like we're, we're, we're talking about something really big here, some, an angels, and then we're talking about a baby boy. It, it, it shifts kind of radically here. But they were childless. Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, they were both very old. And I don't know if I, I think I've shared this with you guys. Um, my wife and I, we dealt with infertility. We have two daughters. Um, the first one, born no problem. I was working a lot. We were opening up a restaurant in San Diego, and I would go in 8 in the morning, get home at midnight, 1 in the morning, and go right back and do it again the next day. And, and one morning I got... Got to our apartment, got in bed, and she rolled over. I think I'd been asleep, and she woke me up. And I, again, zero, zero sleep. And she tells me that we're having a baby. And I, I just, all I remember thinking, who is talking? I was so tired. I, who's telling me that they're having a baby? I, 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 rolled, I rolled over and went back to sleep. She took that as not good, <laughs> but she knows, she knows, you know, she, she understood, right? We got past that. So then we, 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 wonderful, wonderful daughter, Amanda. I mean, just love and love and love and Amanda. And we decided to have a second child. It wasn't that easy. It, it wasn't easy at all. Um, for about three years, maybe some of you have dealt with this. Maybe some of you know somebody who has dealt with infertility. 
um, every month a brutal realization that didn't work, didn't work this month. Then shots and, and there were more expensive things that we couldn't afford, so we didn't do those. We kind of stuck with the things that our insurance allowed us to do. And so for three years, um, that, that was a battle. The infertility journey again. Maybe some of you have waited for something. Maybe it was a child. Maybe it was for a child to return, a prodigal child. I don't know, you all, we all have different prayers and, and some of them don't get answered. And we, we keep praying and we keep praying and we keep praying and, and we, we don't get the answer that we want. Luke continues his now very, very Hebrew Jewish narrative, again, written to a very, very worldly, sophisticated Gentile audience. He says this, verses 8 and 9. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God, and he was chosen by lot. The idea was that by this time there were so many priests that, right, you couldn't have them all there. There were thousands. I want to count 20, 30,000 and so they, you, you were chosen by lot, and, and you might only serve one time in your lifetime, right? You're supposed to be serving regularly, but in the very early days, that would have been. But now there's so many Levites that they kind of got to go through a rotation, right? And so he, he got chosen. This is a big, big deal. Waiting his entire life for this. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Verse 10, And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So again, I want you to just stop and imagine the scene here. He's inside. He's praying. He's lighting the incense. And everybody is gathered outside thinking about Zechariah. Zechariah is thinking about the crowd. Zechariah recognizes that the crowd knows that he and Elizabeth, and it even says this in verse, uh, verse 25, they're barren. They're disgraced. So Zechariah is inside praying, knowing that the people outside know that he is not a whole. Right? He's, he's a broken person. He and his wife are experiencing dis disgrace. And the people outside, they're wondering, do we want Zachariah praying for us doing this stuff? God's not, clearly God's not happy with him. He's been cursed. They're barren. And so the, you, you got this, this going on, this, this, this judging each other, looking at each other and deciding who's worthy, who's, who's, not, who's not worthy. And... and you know, and I, and I get that. As we went through the infertility, we, we wondered, right, did we do something wrong and was this punishment? Was that God's way of dealing with it? You did this, well, now I can't give you that. That's just the way I operate. And we, we struggled. I'm sure Zachariah, struggling with that same thing. So it's easy to see Zachariah's prayer lurching, right? Back and forth between a, 
a future that could have been if, if God had only listened and given him and Elizabeth a baby boy. But he's also, he's in the temple his whole life. He's been waiting for this, so he's, he's got other things on his mind too, right? Is, is the promise of Abraham ever going to be fulfilled, right? He'd spent his whole life, like many, like we're going to learn chapter 3, Simeon and Anna praying their whole lives for that promise to be fulfilled, that promise given way back in the time of Abraham. And so he's thinking about that too. And, and, and again, I can see him, they're old, praying. You think he's still praying for his son at this point or is he, has he given up? Is he, I've been through that and I can't, I can't have hope again and I can't be crushed again, so maybe I'm just going to stop praying that prayer altogether and maybe I'll just stick with this prayer of, Right, Messiah, the anointed one of God, it, you got to come. You, you, you got to because our nation's a mess. The Romans are crushing us. The Greeks already did, and before them, the Babylonians, and we're just being dominated. And, I, and, I, and again, it's easy to conceive that he's praying both of these prayers for a son and for Israel's future, maybe in a kind of a negative way unexpectedly light like he's praying maybe maybe you've done this for whatever it is that you're praying for you know you you kind of lurch between praying fervently and just just bawling out before god and and then on another day you're it's almost a dutiful like well i'm just doing it because i'm supposed to and i don't want to skip it and Right? He might not answer if I, if I skip praying today. He might just not answer. Maybe he was thinking about it. And I skip, you know, so you, you kind of bounce back and forth between just kind of going through the rote and breaking down, please. Right? I know we felt this way. I think I can imagine them feeling the very, very inconsequential in God's plans as they're praying for these things. Again, maybe you too, bouncing back and forth in your prayer life for a miracle from this man from Galilee. But then this happens to Zechariah. Watch this. Verse 11, 13. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer. You notice the singular there, your prayer has been answered, has been heard. Same thing. When God hears, it means he's, he's, he's responding, right? But which, which, which prayer, right? Which, which one? There's two possibilities. Was it for the baby boy or was it for Israel's long-awaited Savior, right? It could have been either one. The angel doesn't make it any easier. Here's what the, the angel just kind of keeps on talking. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to bear you a son, and you're going to call him John. So immediately I'm thinking, Zachariah's going, okay, that's what this is all about. We finally have a baby boy. That's amazing. That's awesome. But Gabriel doesn't stop talking. Gabriel continues talking. So now poor Zachariah is confused. He says this, your baby boy, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. That, that's awesome. Zachariah's like, yes, this is, this is fantastic. Maybe this is the whole thing. The, an angel literally appearing before me in the temple simply to tell me I get to have a baby boy, my wife and I. I mean, th th that's cool. That's awesome. 
But then it gets really intense. Listen to this. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drinks. So right away, Zachariah knows. My son is being dedicated to the Lord. He's not going to be our son. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. These are, these are powerful words, and Zechariah understands what they mean. This, this baby's going to be dedicated to the Lord. He's, it's not going to be really their boy. It's going to be God's, God's son. But here's what leaves poor Zechariah literally speechless. If you know the story, literally speechless. Still talking about his baby boy, right, that he's going to have. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. And understand, I think you're already catching on, this passage right here is steeped in Old Testament history and prophecy. Zechariah is literally seeing the angel tell him that history is about, everything that the Israelites had been waiting for all these years is about to unfold through supposedly a son that's going to be born to his old wife, Elizabeth. So his mind is exploding right now. He's seeing all this, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, again, straight out of Old Testament prophecy, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. All of it, all of it, Old Testament history, prophecy, everything. His baby boy would be the guy that introduced the guy, right? And and so Zachariah is now just, he's out of his mind. He's just, he's crazy. Back to the two questions, which, which prayer is being answered here? They're both being answered, but they're both not being answered. It's a yes and no to both of them. It's complicated, right? Yes, they're going to have a baby boy, but he won't be yours. He's going to be God's. Yes, the arrival of Israel's long-awaited Savior was imminent, but with a twist relating to, in Zechariah's opinion, his ignored, thus far ignored request to have a baby boy. Suddenly the angel, he's been praying for this baby boy his whole adult life. Suddenly the angel's telling him, you're, you're, you're going to have that baby boy. Again, the twist. Now for Zechariah, all of this Old Testament prophecy, all this kind of stuff, that, that, that's all great. That's all fine. He's been praying for that. I, I believe he believes it. But he's stuck. He's stuck because all of this is going to be delivered through a baby boy to him and his his old wife, old Zachariah and, and, and old Elizabeth. That seemed to be the thing to Zachariah. That was the stumbling block. Listen to this. He said to the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. In other words, how could he and Elizabeth possibly be the recipient of one such miracle through which another even more amazing miracle would occur? Right? They were a disgraced couple. Right? So Zachariah's like, no, you, you, you got something wrong. You're visiting the wrong guy. It's the guy that shows up next week, right? He has a whole bunch of sons, and he's blessed. God's happy with him. And again, we had the same thoughts when we were going through infertility. Had God refused to give us a second child because maybe we had disgraced him in some way? And again, I, I bring up my story, because I know you all got your own stories too, whatever it is, it might not be infertility, but it's, it's something that you've struggled with God. Why haven't you answered this prayer request? It's not selfish. Everybody prays it. Why are we getting, why are we getting a no? Why am I getting a no? 
So I understand, and maybe you do too, Zachariah's unbelieving response. Again, repeated rounds, same with infertility, same with your prayers, hope. And you feel somebody or you have somebody call and say, oh, the Holy Spirit just told me that you're going to have that baby boy. I had an old couple come to me when I was looking for a church. Um, and I was the interim at their church, and they drove two hours to my house because they had to tell me that the Holy Spirit had told them that I was going to be their new pastor. And I, that was a real struggle because I had to tell them, well, the Holy Spirit told me something different. <laughs> I'm not going to be your pastor. I'm, I'm going to be a pastor in Watsonville. And the look, I, I but, we, but we get there, don't we? We get there. And we think, and, and everyone's telling us, oh, yes, and all this affirmation, and then no. I mean, even when I was looking for a job, there was a crazy song by Phil Somebody. You're, you're, gonna, you're going home. You're going home. And I thought that meant that I was going to get a job in Escondido, the church I grew up in. I was like, that's a message from God. He's going to answer my prayer. And nope. <laughs> Actually, the pastor, you all remember the pastors in Kennewick that we went to Tumwater. What were their names? Yeah, Chad's mom got the job. I didn't. Anyway, long story, okay? Not, way beside the fact here, okay? Back, back here, back here, right? We get to that point, why get our hopes up, right? We know how it all ends, and we kind of have this fatalistic attitude in our prayer life. Well, I got to keep praying it because I'm supposed to, but I seriously doubt that train has left the station long, long ago. God doesn't work miracles through people like me, through a couple like us. And God's plan to save the world certainly can't involve a couple like us or somebody like me. But God's messenger disagrees. Listen to this. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you, to speak truth to you. And I tell you this good news. Now, understand something. The good news wasn't so much that God had decided that Elizabeth was going to have a baby boy. Right? The good news was the fact that she was bearing the son who would announce the arrival of the long-awaited Savior. That was the mind-bender. That, that, was, that was the big deal. And while the angel spoke words of truth, apparently Zechariah hadn't been speaking words of truth because the angel said, stop talking. Right? I don't want to hear from you anymore. I, I, literally, he gives him a nine-month timeout. Right? Think, about what you're, think about your low opinion of me and my promises. Right? Literally, God... Nine-month timeout. I don't want to hear from you again. I, I wonder if, if Zachariah was maybe to Elizabeth, maybe to his neighbors, voicing bitterness, maybe voicing anger, maybe voicing uh, right, his disappointment with God. I, I don't know. This seems like, wow, <laughs> that's a pretty big... Whew. I just get the impression that Zechariah thought he was righteous. Zechariah thought he had it all figured out, but Zechariah didn't have a clue. And God said, just stop. Just stop and think. I'm going to give you nine months. Just, just think about this. I, I love it. So we're going to fast forward about nine months and about 37 verses. We're going to jump to verse 57, if you've been following in your Bibles. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they heard of her joy. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. 
But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, but there's no one among your relatives who has that name. And we think, what's the big deal? I don't know how, how many of you were named after somebody in your family. Maybe, right? Maybe you went through a whole list of names and, and either you or your wife said, no, I dated somebody and they're a jerk and we can't name your kid that, right? You, you had to have had that one. But this is a big deal for this culture because the way you named your child solidified, verified your genealogy. Genealogy was a huge deal. This, this, this whole naming ceremony, it wasn't just, oh, mom, come up with a name. Just, just make sure it doesn't, you know, rhyme funny with the last name. I mean, that, that wasn't the consideration. The name verified that you were from this family, from this tribe, and you had rights and privileges based on that. And, and you're this, 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 with all the neighbors gathered around, this was your your legal document, literally, that yes, you are in fact, and all the neighbors understand this fact that you are from this family. This is your genealogy. Elizabeth's messing everything up, right? There's nobody named John in our family. Everything ends with an I-A-H, right? I love all those names, Jeremiah, Zachariah. I got Jerry. Very disappointing. Anyway, uh, so they go over mom's head, right? And they appeal to a mute and, a, and apparently, right? God said, stop talking. But from this passage, apparently he can't hear either. It says this, then they made signs to his father instead of speaking to him, right? They had to make signs. Apparently he couldn't hear either. To find out what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet. He didn't ask. He signed I looked at that and I was like, how's he asking if he's mute? Okay, so he signed for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Elizabeth is right. His name is John. And having fulfilled the angel's prophecy, which was back in chapter thir or verse 13, right? It's, as soon as you give him his name, you can talk again, right? So as soon as he says his name is John, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. And my guess is, my guess is it was no longer a defeatist, no longer a pessimistic, no longer anger, resentment, bitterness, nothing. All that came out of his mouth was how incredibly faithful God is, period. And my guess is he also let them know <laughs> that God was going to use his son to announce the arrival of the long-awaited Savior. I'm sure he slipped that in. because I mean, he's, he's dad. He's, he's so darn proud, right? Now, this kind of thing is going to get people talking, Right? You start talking about the end times and they'd been waiting for the end times and they'd all dreamed of it and some of them dreaded it and all of a sudden all of this miracle and all this miraculous stuff happening to this family and now Zachariah is talking about his son being the one who would announce the long-awaited Savior, the anointed one of God, the Messiah. And I'm guessing if you're a neighbor, you're either excited or you are terribly worried because your life's a mess. And you've been thinking, oh, he isn't coming back anytime soon. I'll have time to get ready, right? We, there's several parables about this faulty way of thinking. It says this, all the neighbors were filled with awe. And as I, I read the commentaries, I thought, well, that doesn't work. And I read a whole bunch of different translations and what we're really looking for here is, is um, well, what, what one writer, let's see, um, fearful, deep, reverential fear. It, it made them nervous, right? What they were talking about, what Zachariah was talking about, this had eternal consequences, right? The, the rubber was about to hit the road. 
And, and things would matter now where things hadn't mattered in the past. Things are going to have consequences now. And so they're, they're just, they're talking about, they're, they're all over the place. I'm just all over the map. But this wasn't new news to Zechariah, right? Remember, he'd had nine months to think on this. And so he busts out, right? He, he's been wanting to talk for nine months, and now you can't shut him up. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. Now, what you see in your Bibles, it's a poem, it's a song. Many call it a, a, a poem or a hymn of thanksgiving, but Luke calls it a prophecy. It, it's not a thanksgiving, it, it's a prophecy. And you'll notice that, I'm going to read it to you here in a second, gonna, you'll notice it's called the Aorist Tense. It, it, it's a tense that um, it's describing something now, but it's already happened. Right? It, like it's happening now, but it hasn't happened, but I'm going to describe it as if it has already happened. So listen to this song. None of the stuff that Zechariah is going to talk about has happened yet, but he's going to talk about it because the angel has said the time has come. So he now knows everything else is now going to happen. It's just going to be this crazy domino effect. I mean, he sees it all happening in his mind's eye. says this, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come. He hasn't come yet. <laughs> right? his, his baby boy hasn't even come yet, let alone the Messiah, because he has come to his people and he re has redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, a horn to the biblical world. That was a symbol of power, right? If you think about a rhino, this tiny little thing, and he gets that horn in you, you're hurting, or a bull, it's a relatively small instrument, but it does a tremendous amount of damage, an incredible amount of power in a very, very small package, right? So this was the ancient idea of, the, of a horn, and you see it in a lot of different places in the temple on the, on the four corners of the, the brazen bull, right? The, the horns, lots of power, lots of power. The Messiah would be a powerful warrior, and he would bring a powerful rescue. This, this was the idea of the horn of salvation, just as our prophets told us long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, the Israelites got it wrong. Okay? Zechariah is voicing what the Israelites got wrong. Right? The Messiah was not going to come and make them the mighty nation, and they, he was not going to come as a warrior, and he was not going to come to destroy and trash the Roman Empire. The empire that Jesus was here to destroy was a spiritual empire. And the empire that he had come to establish was a spiritual empire. Well, hello there, cutie. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Um, totally lost my train of thought here. <laughs> okay, so as much as Luke's audience would have liked this this to be true, right, that the Messiah was going to come and finally crush the Romans and, and pay back the Babylonians and, and, the, and all these people who had subjected them and, and had been treating them horrible. Um, but that wasn't going to be John's task. John's task was going to be to point out that there was a bigger problem. It wasn't from outside. It was from within. I'll let it unfold here. He continues in verse 72, 75. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And then finally, Zechariah moves on to the baby boy, right? That prayer, 
right? But now it's not just about the baby boy. Zachariah recognizes, and I think at a certain point we all recognize in the midst of a temporal need that's not unimportant, but it is temporal, that sometimes there's something bigger going on that forces us to re-examine that thing that we've been praying so hard for. There's something bigger going on that maybe this thing was going to play a part that we did not expect. Zachariah sees that there's something much, much bigger going on. Listen to this. He says, and you, my child. Right? So the first half of his poem is all about the fact that God had remembered his promise to Abraham. The Messiah was on its way. And now he's talking to God about his baby boy. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation. Now, to the Jewish people, the knowledge of salvation was that, that, that the Messiah would come and crush the Roman Empire. That was salvation. But John the Baptist, that was not the message that he was given. Salvation was not about a foreign country, foreign domination. Salvation was going to come through forgiveness of sin. That was that third stumbling block that, that even today people have struggled with. But he's saying right here, that's the way to the Savior, through the forgiveness of sins. Not power, not violence, not coercion, none of that. Through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. So how does, to sum it all up, how does Luke deal with at least three of the stumbling blocks to biblical faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world? I think he nails them spot on. God is breaking into history. <laughs> deal with it. That's just the fact. God's breaking into history in the flesh by way of a virgin. He's going to die on a Roman cross, raised three days later. If you have trouble with the supernatural and if you have trouble with miracles, you are not going to find Christ. And how did Luke deal with the strange ancient culture? Well, that's the way it is. All the mechanisms are embedded in the culture from a land far, far away, long, long ago. If you want to see Jesus, you've got to go through Jerusalem. You've got to be okay with miracles, and you've got to go through Jerusalem. Weird town, weird habits, far, far away, long, long ago. And that guy from that land far, far away, long, long ago, he can rectify our sin situation. He does fix things because that sin situation does, in fact, exist. To get to Jesus, you've got to go through miracle, you've got to go through Jerusalem, and you've got to deal with your sin. By the way, God didn't give us the miracle we were praying for. I told you we have two daughters. We never gave birth to a second daughter. We adopted our second daughter out of foster care when she was four years old, which threw our lives into turmoil that's never really stopped. Um, and we ask ourselves, what kind of answer a prayer? What bigger? And, and we, we get it. People talk to us. She could have had a horrible life. Yes, that's true. She had to have had a better life with you. Well, maybe. We, we don't know the answer to any, any of these questions. 
But we know God did, did a work in us through her that I don't know if he could have done through a second child that Diane gave birth to. I, we, we don't know the answers to these questions, but we know where we stand today. We didn't get the miracle we wanted, but we got the miracle we needed. We have a Savior who died for our sins and makes all those other all those other hurts and pains manageable to a certain degree. I want to read this last passage together. I'm going to share communion. This is John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Shall read it out loud together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Shall bow your heads. Fathers, we prepare to receive communion. We recognize that in these union, these communion elements, there's the supernatural, there's an, an ancient, ancient culture with its, its practices intimately embedded in these elements and, and there's God's answer to sin. So if anybody, again, wants to meet this Jesus, you're going to have to be okay with miracles and ancient culture and sin. And he, he found a way for us to find him. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for your son who bridges that gap even to this day by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, Father, let us recognize the cost, the cost and the love Father, we know love always costs. And you love us so much you were willing to pay that price. Thank you, Father. In your son's name I pray. Amen.